This is Season 2 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.41, The Point of No Return, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and once again broadcasting from the global epicenter of a pandemic. Hello! And I'm Nina, new to Zeta, and reminded this week that there is even more to talk about in this show that we are simply incapable of watching for, thinking about, or talking about. (laughs) We do our best. We're only two people. It's only an hour to an hour and a half. How much time would be necessary to comprehensively discuss a single episode of this show? (laughs) I don't even want to think (laughs) about it. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 288 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporter, Bautista 100 If you would like to support the podcast but can't afford to spend money right now, write us a review. Reviews improve the rate at which we show up in searches on various podcast apps and sites and help us reach new listeners. We also have special thanks for Hobbs and Jeffrey H. for sending us some tea, and Hobbs for the book. We are enjoying the tea already, and I'm planning on digging into the book this weekend. I know we've been giving weekly updates from New York, but I don't really know what to say this week. Things continue. We are still healthy and still worried. We hope you're doing well and keeping safe. And if you have the resources, support others when and where you can. This week, we discuss Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam, episode 40, Activation of Grips. After the recap and our talkback, we will be chatting with MSB's acting and voice acting consultant about the differences between Zeta Gundam's Japanese and English dubs. But first, let's tune in to TNN. This is Colony 13 of Side 2. Here, amid the tranquil peaks of the Alps Mark II artificial mountain range, life moves a little bit slower. Children play out of doors, their parents unafraid that they will be snatched up and used for experiments by the wicked Ayug-type laboratories. Here and there, the call of a hawk hunting rabbits in the simulated high-altitude forests can be heard. Amid the artificial natural beauty and the pleasures of modernity, the people here in this neutral colony still keep up many of the old traditions of life that their Earth-born ancestors once knew. It has been called Space Switzerland, and it's the perfect destination if you need to get away from it all for a while. And it's where we're going next. What do you mean she never showed up at the hotel? Her luggage is there? Well, what's she doing running around with our luggage? So find her! Yes, I think you should check Lucerne. Check Morgarten too. 
bring some Hyzaks into the colony to look for her if you have to. Just don't call me again. I thought the whole point of giving me a co-star for this assignment was to reduce my stress. What do you mean we're live? Hello, I'm Travelin' Tom Thompson. And now that I'm back, the Titans Travel Group, in partnership with the Colony 13 Tourism Bund and Debit Suisse, has arranged for me to spend two weeks resting and recuperating at the sumptuously appointed Lakeside Lodge here in Bucolic Beshen. And as always, I'm joined once again by Lieutenant Nina Nina's daughter in the studio. Pleased to have you back. How was your trip out there, Lieutenant? Leaving the comforting embrace of Earth's gravity is never easy or pleasant, but if you must do it, I can now personally recommend flying first class aboard one of the private Temptation class shuttles operated by Space Suisse. Let Space Suisse redefine luxury travel for you, but remember that each Space Suisse shuttle has a strict limit of two passengers to allow the rest of the shuttle's payload capacity to be dedicated to safely transferring priceless art and antiquities from Earth to secure and confidential storage inside Colony 13. So if you're bringing your ungrateful children or a treacherous camera crew along, make sure you book their seats on an economy-class commercial flight. Once you arrive in Colony 13, each of the Colony Cylinders cantons is just a quick linear car ride from the airport. Some critics may say, no, you can't just take a high-speed train along the outside of the colony and bypass all of the meticulously crafted natural wonders. But to that, I say, linear car go whoosh. But once you disembark from the linear car, you'll be stepping back in time. The only way to reach Beshen is via horse-guided mobile cart. So quaint! Arriving in Beshen, you'll find all the livestock, recreation, and livestock-based recreation you could want. Why, just before filming, I rented a flock of sheep and tried my hand at traditional shepherding. Wow, how did that go? Well, I accidentally drove them across the road and caused a bit of a traffic jam for a mobile cart piloted by a group of rambunctious teens engaged in some sort of weird love triangle. But the people here don't seem to mind a little ovine inconvenience. They just hopped out and went to play in the nearby lake. And speaking of the lake, that's where I'm going next. I've rented a small rowboat, and once we're done filming, I'm going to row out into the middle of the placid lake there I plan to hold a proper funeral service for Lieutenant Junior Grade Toby amid the drifting forms of these regal and not at all portentous swans. That sounds lovely, Lieutenant, but I think those are actually geese. Geese? The giraffes of the bird world? Maybe instead I'll just stay on the shore, don a pair of lederhosen, and join that game of volleyball on the lawn. The one you can see in the background, right now. Hey, doesn't that woman spiking the ball look kind of like Axis Zeon's supreme leader, Haman? <laughs> Lieutenant Thompson? Lieutenant Thompson, are you there? Uh, sorry, Lieutenant. He, he took off running for the lodge the moment that gold mobile suit went by overhead. He was yelling something about needing to get a Toblerone? And now the recap for Episode 40, Activation of Grips.
Fa, Camille, and Emma watch as Rosamia bickers with Shinta and Kum over Haro. Her general childishness has not worn off. It's clear that something is not right. When she notices them, she rushes over to hug Camille, and he takes the opportunity to introduce her to Emma. Suddenly, Rosamia is frightened. Emma scares her, and she sinks to the ground, huddled in on herself. Don't touch me, she cries when Fa goes to lay a hand on her shoulder. At the same time, Emma's vision goes blue. She is overcome by a strange sensation and wonders who this girl could be. Leaving Rosamia in Fa's care, Camille follows Emma to a meeting with the officers. It seems that Grips too may have been converted into a laser emitter, and their mission is to find out for certain, while also investigating the gate of Zedan. Rosamia wanders in before Fa can stop her. She seems lost, and Fa gently guides her away. Thinking it may give them some clue as to what's going on with this mysterious civilian, Shar proposes that the ship's doctor examine Rosamia. Camille asks if Shar really thinks she could be a cyber new type, and seems confused when it's pointed out that Shar never said that. Making her way down the hall, Rosamia clutches her head in pain, her vision going blue this time. Desperately, Rosamia gasps, please, Tell me about my brother, or about yourself, anything. Of course I will, Fa says, but what's the matter? I'm afraid to be alone, is all Rosamia replies. On the Dogos gear, Rekoa and Siroko have a heart-to-heart. He tells her he understands her, that he can tell her heart is hurting, and that none of the men on the Argama were sensitive enough to see it. That she has had to be tough and to act strong, but is exhausted and needs rest. It's as if you've been watching me all along, she murmurs, before he pulls her into an embrace. Shocked, she struggles, but he only pulls her closer. This is the warmth you've been seeking, and if my feelings prove insincere, you can stab me through the heart. Abruptly, he pulls away from her, telling her that he is returning to the Jupitress, but leaving her at the Masala. Bewildered by the sudden change of subject, she thanks his already retreating back. The Dogos Gear has noticed the Argama launching mobile suits, despite the Argama hiding itself in a debris field, and launches the Barzams and Rekoa in the Masala. Camille, Emma, and Apoli hide their suits behind bits of asteroid, hoping to remain undetected as they observe grips, but Rekoa spots them. After an initial hesitation, she tells her commander that she has spotted the Ayuk mobile suits, and a fight begins. When the Masala chases after the Zeta, Emma intervenes, grabbing hold of the Masala with her Mark II. Emma, let me go, Rekoa says, and a stunned, disbelieving Emma releases her hold, falling back and stuttering, it, it can't be. Returning to her pursuit of the Zeta, Rekoa grumbles under her breath at how skilled Camille has gotten as a pilot. He darts behind an asteroid and she loses him. In a blink, he darts back into view and behind her, grabbing hold of the Masala and sending it crashing into a piece of debris. Camille watches as the enemy pilot leaves their cockpit and is as stunned as Emma was when he sees Rekoa. This is a mission, isn't it? You're infiltrating the Titans? Camille's voice is tinged with desperation as he tries to understand why Rekoa would leave them. But Rekoa insists that this was her own decision. He lunges toward her in a motion that is half tackle and half hug, demanding to know why she would do this, why they must now meet his enemies. Both of them begin to cry, as Rekko explains that there's nothing for her on the Argama. 
But I can protect you, isn't that enough? Camille sobs. Don't make things harder for me. You're kind, but... Someday you'll understand. With a shove, Rekawa sends Camille back toward the Zeta, and she jets back to the Methus. She tells Camille that the colony laser is complete before returning to the Dogos gear, Camille calling after her. In the hangar of the Argama, Emma confronts Camille. You saw Rekawa! Hey, where are you going? I don't know what I saw, he says, dodging around her. And what do you care where I go? Emma slaps him across the face, demanding that he go make his report to Captain Bright and get himself under control. He fires back, How am I supposed to be calm? How can I explain something I don't understand? But goes to report all the same. Once there, Camille admits that he saw Rekawa. Emma thinks he should have killed her, and they argue. Camille pointing out that Emma betrayed the Titans to join Ayug, and Emma countering that this is completely different. Camille sullenly asking if everything is justified as long as it's in accordance with your ideology, and Emma slapping him and telling him to stop being a brat. Living governed by emotions alone is easy, she scolds. Oh, is that why you keep slapping people, he retorts. Bright finally steps in to tell them both to cut it out. He's confident that Rekwa's information is good. They must assume that the colony laser is complete. And for the sake of crew morale, they must keep Rekwa's betrayal a secret. Camille bristles at this adult way of doing things. The dishonesty grates at him, and he storms out of the meeting. The colony laser is ready for a partial trial. Basque decides they should aim at the Argama, and makes Rekwa stay on the bridge to watch. You need to get used to the Titans, he growls, when she tries to excuse herself. The shot just misses the Argama, reflects off a nearby colony's light panels, and blasts straight through the cylinder. Air rushes out, sucking people and debris into space. Camille's vision goes blue, and he can feel the blinding light of the laser, and sense the people dying. What can one person do against a weapon like that? Bright orders the Argama to retreat immediately. Basque is unfazed by missing the Argama, considering the test a good warning to other colonies. Rekoa, finally permitted to leave the room, stands in a dark hallway overcome by the horror of what's just happened. She is trapped. She cannot return to Ayug now. One element that's going to tie together a lot of the characters that we want to discuss in this episode, so it's a very character-focused episode, is the blue new type vision, which afflicts Emma, Rosamia, and Camille at various different points in the episode. It hits Rosamia when she's introduced to Emma, or no, other way around, it hits Emma when she's introduced to Rosamia. Who is this woman? It hits Rosamia. When does it hit Rosamia? It's after Rosamia bursts in on the meeting and she's with Fa in the hallway. Mm, And this is when she insists, tell me everything about Camille. Tell me everything about yourself. Mm -hmm. And then Camille, when the colony laser is fired. For each of these characters, the moment when they have their new type experience and the screen goes blue, it's a moment of horror. 
And the type of horror is different in, in each experience, but each of them is staring at something that is unknowable, unthinkable. For Emma, it's this interaction with this woman who is so clearly broken, so clearly an empty vessel. For Rosamia, it's the dread of the battle that's about to break out. And then for Camille at the end, it's the massive scale of the tragedy wrought by the colony laser. For all of them, it's also a sense of of threat and danger. Because in addition to seeing the state that Rosamia is in, we know that Emma thinks she's a spy or in some way this woman has been planted among them. And not for any nice reason, right? It has to be some kind of a trap. It has to be a threat, but they can't figure out how or what sort of threat. The idea that Rosamia is a threat has to be kind of floating around in the the air of the Argama. Because during that meeting with the command staff, with Bright and Quattro, Apoli and Emma, Camille thinks he hears Quattro say something about her being a cyber new type. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think it's just that Camille has picked up on this idea that's kind of floating around in the new type ether between all of these different people. I had wondered about that, if his sense there was because he was picking up on things people weren't saying. Is he so empathic at this point that he can pick up on things even though other people aren't saying them? Or, alternatively, does he think she's a cyber new type and he's attributing his own thought to Mm. someone else? And that same sense of threat, when Camille has his blue screen new type moment, it's right after the colony laser's been fired, and he's sitting there thinking to himself, how can one person have any kind of effect in a war like this, in a a battle that includes weapons like this? And we're definitely going to come back to that towards the end of this, because I think that's really important for tying the whole episode together. But before I can talk about that, we need to talk about a few more of these interactions. Should we start with Rosamia? That's where the episode starts. All right. She has regressed even more starkly into her childish persona. In the last episode, she seemed kind of immature, but now she's playing with Haro with Shinta and Kum. There's a scene later when she's afraid of the doctor. There's a scene where she's uh, refusing to go put on her normal suit and go to a safe place on the ship. And Shinta and Kum, who are like six years old, are the responsible, mature voices of reason trying to coerce this infantile Rosami personality to do what needs to be done. So several of those behaviors I did not interpret as being part of her childish state. I interpreted them as the result of various trauma she's likely to have experienced. But just to touch on the childishness, yeah, the fact that she's bickering with Shinta and Kum as if they are equals. Uh, I don't know if you picked up on this. I found it very interesting. There is almost a consensus among the crew members we meet to treat her like a child. And not just any child, but to actually treat her like Camille's kid sister. Because, did you notice, Emma tells Camille, like, oh, you should let her rest in the detention room. He gives her to Fa, 
because as a child, she is Fa's responsibility. <laughs> On the bridge during the meeting, when they say they want to have the doctor take a look at her, they ask Camille almost his permission. They say, right. would that be all right? Which only makes sense if they're treating him like her guardian. They're treating him like her older brother. Yeah, presumably he's the one who brought her on the ship, so he sort of takes responsibility for her. But taking responsibility for her is not the same thing as having the authority to say whether or not she gets examined by the ship's doctor. It makes me wonder if Camille, along with all of them, is entertaining the possibility that she might be right. And yet, all of them looking at her can see and can say, there is something seriously wrong with this woman. Right. We're trying to figure out what it is. We're humoring her. We're taking care of her as best we can. And maybe part of that is going along with this little delusion that she is Camille's little sister. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of the doctor, I don't know. How did Four feel about Namikar? You know, we've seen what has been done to young cyber new types in the interest of making them better weapons. A lot of that happens in a pseudo-medical context. I assumed her terror of the doctor was a combination of her experiences as a cyber new type, but without the sort of resources of an older teen Mm -hmm. to hide that fear or suppress it. Same thing with the battle. She's scared because we're all (laughs) scared all the time. Anybody would be scared. But she also knows somewhere inside her that she's supposed to be fighting. Yeah, there's a yearning for it. That, oh no, you you have to put me in a mobile suit. I'm supposed to be out there. Which made me very curious about her fear of Emma. Hmm. Does she know Emma somehow? Did they know each other? Was she fed information about Emma before all of this started? Or does Emma represent a type? Is it not about Emma the person, but the sort of person that Emma is, this mature, adult, warlike woman who is, throughout the course of the episode, shown to be quite harsh? A couple of times throughout the episode, Rosamia expresses a fear of being left alone, of Camille leaving her or being taken away from her. Um, And she says this about Emma. She says that she's afraid of Emma. She hates Emma because Emma is going to, uh, the subtitles say, run off with Camille, like they're going to elope. And while it's true that Camille is a skirt chaser and he was certainly uh, attracted to Emma early on and there was some inkling that he might be interested in her, there's no indication that relationship has any possibility of happening. Yet, in a sense, there is a possibility of Emma running off with Camille, not in a romantic kind of way, but because Emma represents something that Camille could develop into. Emma is a particular kind of soldier, a particular kind of warrior, very dedicated to that. It's her life. It's her persona. And that's something that Camille could become. And it's something that Emma really wants Camille to become. If by wants, you mean demands constantly. (laughs) That is the manner in which someone like Emma wants things, at least from her subordinates. So for Rosamia, who is even in her childish state, quite perceptive to the feeling of things, the aura of things, you know, saying that Haman in the last episode had the scent of Ayug on her. Maybe she's perceptive to the feeling of warlikeness on Emma and how that threatens to take Camille away from her, to take Camille away from childhood, from this 
what Rekua calls like an over-serious or a too earnest uh, personality and to make him into the thing that he hates most, which is an adult. But there is some question how much of that is her authentic personality and how much of Emma's behavior is the result of what Bright, as kindly as possible, points out is her need to prove herself constantly because she came over from the Titans. That I don't get any sense that anyone distrusts her, but she clearly, or at least Bright, feels that she has a strong pressure on herself to prove that she's left the Titans behind, to prove that she's 100% with Ayug, and that part of her behavior, part of the way that she is, especially with Camille, is because of that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, the way she reacts when he brings up her uh, switching sides in the past, her having been a Titan and then having betrayed them to join Ayug, uh, is really extreme. She loses her cool, gets very emotional. She hits him. You know, he's being a bit of a brat, but it is a totally unjustified reaction from Emma. The only answer to that is it is because she's so sensitive about this. Yeah, absolutely not justified in hitting Camille either of the times that she does it this episode. We haven't seen much of Emma in the past 20 episodes or so, so we haven't really gotten a sense for her development as a character. But I do think that she's taken a turn here because Rekawa's defection over to the Titans side has brought up her own uh, turn coterie. It's put it back in her mind, and she's afraid that it's put it in everybody's mind. In that conversation at the end, Emma scolds Camille, saying, you should have just killed her. You should have killed Rekawa when you had the chance. But in the moment, in the battle, when Emma heard Rekawa's voice, she was as shocked, as taken off guard. As disbelieving. As Camille was. She had the Mark II's hand on Rekawa's masala. And as soon as she hears Rekawa's voice, she loses her grip and falls back into Apoli's arms. He did admittedly have more of an opportunity than Emma did, but it's hardly an easy thing. His desire to believe that Rekawa is just on a spy mission is heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking. And he wants her to come back, even at this point. Well, he doesn't want to have to try to kill her. I mean, he tells her, if we can't be on the same side, I would just assume we didn't meet while we were alive. Yeah. And I think there's more to it than just his desire not to have to fight her. Camille really strongly believes that the Titans are evil. He's right, by the way. As this episode makes abundantly clear, for the nth time, the Titans are evil. And Camille is really concerned with preserving the innocence of people, saving them from becoming monsters. God, Rekawa makes me so angry. There's nothing for me on the Argama. What she means is there's no, like, lover for me. There's no love of my life on the Argama. But what? No friendships? No comrades? No something to fight for? I get very bothered by this thinking that a romantic relationship is the be-all and end-all that will make your life better. (laughs) And it's the kind of thinking that Rekoa should have grown out of, like, Seven to ten years ago. (laughs) If only her emotional development had not been stunted by all that trauma. And if only her skull region was not full of brain poison. 
I would like to attribute it all to the brain poison. I really would. There's some powerful brain poison in this episode. That brief scene between Rekoa and Soroko, he's just topping her up with brain poison. Or it's less mystical than that, and he's just abusive and manipulative, and she's caught in it. That is its own kind of brain poison. I don't see them as separable. <laughs> I was actually reminded of a line from Moonstruck again. Uh, when he goes on his long monologue about her feelings. <laughs> and she's just sort of listening to all of this. There's an exchange in Moonstruck where one character is kind of like narrating to the other. And he asks her, what are you doing? And she says, I'm telling you your life. And that's what, <laughs> the vibe that I get here. Soroko is telling Rekoa her life. Yeah. Maybe he's sort of editing it as he goes. He's recontextualizing how she views the events of her own life. At least the recent ones. For me, this is a deeply uncomfortable scene to watch because when he hugs her, she's shocked and then she resists him. She's straining away from him and he pushes her arms out of the way and continues to hug her. And she appears to kind of like give up on fighting it and to lean against him. I think it's pretty clear why I would find that uncomfortable, but to spell it out, if somebody resists you hugging them, you shouldn't continue to hug them and force them to hug some more. And even if they give up resisting, that doesn't mean it's okay for you to continue hugging them. However, there are long-standing tropes in writing romance that say that women are supposed to resist and men are supposed to be persistent and that it's like romantic to do it this way. Um, so it's unclear what the show writers meant. Are we meant to see this as Sirocco's a creep or are we meant to see this as Rekoa feels like she has to resist because she's the strong woman type and she doesn't depend on anyone. And this is Sirocco showing her like, no, no, you don't have to be strong with me. Do you think that the show has, at this point, established Sirocco to be a creep? Yeah, but we've also established that Rekoa is here for him. So... You know, <laughs> yeah, I was also deeply amused by his professions of warmth and affection, followed by, by the way, I'm hitting the Jupiteris. I'm leaving you a masala. Bye. This is after he said, if I ever prove false, you may kill me. I won't even resist. Just stab me right in the heart. This is his solution to every problem. Literally every problem. It's true. It's what he told Hyman. It's what he told Mineva slash Haman. Right. Just kill me if it doesn't work out. He has never encountered a problem that could not be solved by offering to die. Unfortunately, this is Sirocco and he never keeps his promises. I actually thought it was really brilliant how that scene is constructed there at the end when he professes his love and then he leaves her the masala and goes back to the Jupiteris. Because what he does is he puts his hand not just on her cheek, but like under her chin and like lifts her head a little bit. And given the way the scene is played out so far and the action he's doing, everything about it says, and now they kiss. And then he doesn't kiss her. And then her. he doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't kiss her. Instead, he gives her a mobile suit and he gives her some orders. He is all promise. He is all tantalizing suggestion and no follow through in order to get you to do the things that he wants you to do in order to always keep you going for that that next almost kiss. There were a couple of moments that I particularly noticed because of the way the scene was composed. 
that seemed to highlight the disorientation <laughs> of these scenes. After Rosamia collapses on the ground, scared of Emma, we get a shot of Camille looking down, presumably at her. We are almost sort of from her perspective, but it's not straight up. It's sideways. It's off kilter. Mm. It's tilted. When he and Reku are reunited at the end of their conversation, when she pushes him away, the scene also starts spinning. Not very fast and not very much, but it, it sort of starts to spin as he's drifting away. And again, we get that sense of disorientation, that mm. loss of emotional control. When the colony laser is about to fire and Bright is sending everyone to level one battle stations, Quattro is in one of the hallways. He's got his hand on the, the rail on the side and he's zipping through the hallway. But the hallway has been sort of like darkened and muted around him, almost like the hallway that Four was running through back on Kilimanjaro. And that's when he's realizing we are not going to be in time. Yeah, we can't do anything. We are trapped like he is in that hallway too slow, reacting too late to get to his mobile suit in time. Because for Quattro, the mobile suit represents the concept of the ability to do something. It is his power to affect things. Did you notice that Camille's reaction to the firing of the colony laser is almost identical to Amaro's reaction to the firing of the solar system at the oh. end of First Gundam? What is this light? All these people are dying and I can feel it. It is exactly like what happens to Amaro when the solar system is fired. That is a good note. You know, there's a rule of film criticism that I actually learned from you some time ago, which is that if something happens three times, then it's probably meaningful. There's something that happens in this episode three times. I don't know if you noticed it, but at three different times, somebody gets thrown or tackled or pushed and so that their back slams against a wall. Rosamia gets thrown her back against the wall. Uh, during the battle, Camille grabs the masala and like throws it into a piece of space debris. And then at the end, when Camille is hugging Fa, he sort of tackles her and she drifts into a wall. Well, these are all emotional as well as physical impacts, right? With Rosamia, she's being told off by Emma. This is none of your business, basically, because she's trying to be like, don't pick on my brother. Uh with Rekawa, she's having to confront Camille, who she probably hoped she was never going to see again and who she knows admired her and who she thinks is a very sweet boy. And with Fa, it's, you know, an open display of affection from Camille, which we know is rather inconsistent <laughs> and infrequent. Yeah. And in each of these cases, there is someone who is trapped emotionally in the situation. Even though it's space, you cannot, in fact, just drift away. Your back is up against the wall, so to speak. The last time we talked about Rekawa, when we were talking about her defection, you had said that the real telling moment for her would be whether or not she's able to fight against her former crew. Kind of a mixed bag, actually. She hesitates at first to say that she's seen them, and she winds up reporting them. But she doesn't really try to kill anybody. She does fight. She fights, but once she is back in the Masala and Camille is not yet back in his mobile suit, she could have killed him. Yeah. So at the beginning when she's spotted the Zeta, but she doesn't report it, 
She then spots uh, one of the Rick Diaz's, and then she reports the mobile suits. I kind of think that if it had just been Camille and the Zeta, she probably would have let him go. But it becomes clear it's a broader operation. And she's clearly distraught at the end of the episode after she's seen the kinds of things that the Titans will blithely do. Because for Rekoa, it's been about personal relationships. I think that's why she would have let Camille go. She has a good personal relationship with Camille. It really does tear her apart to see him again and to think about having to fight him, to think about having to kill him, to know that he's so disappointed in her. The ideology, the Ayug versus the Titans, the bigger picture political stuff, that has never been as important for her. At least that's what she said when she was switching sides. But now she's realizing that the ideology matters. The bigger picture political stuff has real repercussions. I also realized coming back to her conversation with Camille, uh, Camille has two back-to-back conversations that basically amount to grow up. (laughs) (laughs) And by grow up, we mean you can't have your heart on your sleeve all the time. You can't be so open and so free with your feelings and your thoughts. You need to be more guarded. You need to be more careful or you will not survive. And they don't just mean physically. Rekoa certainly doesn't. I believe she means emotionally. Although she does suggest that his emotions will get him literally killed. Yeah, you know, whether it's Rekoa or Emma and Bright and Char, they're all telling him he needs to be more guarded and he hates it. I got the strongest Holden Caulfield vibes. <laughs> oh, I'll just act like a grown up then and pretend I know everything. <laughs> You're all such phonies lying about everything all the time. What good does it do? Like, he knows very well that it would be horrible for ship morale for everyone to find out that Rekoa switched sides. He knows this. He's not a dumb kid. But he is already suffering with the knowledge. So he why doesn't shouldn't? see why shouldn't everybody? <laughs> I actually had a very different experience of that scene the second time I watched it. I'm glad to hear that because you had some very harsh words for Camille after the first time we watched it. And you know that when you say mean things about Camille, (laughs) it hurts me. Well, so here's the issue. Camille says two things, which are rather different in nature, and one of which I agree with and one of which I don't. And the first thing he says is that there's no difference between Emma leaving the Titans to join Ayug and Rekawa leaving Ayug to join the Titans, that they are the same. I think that's wrong. (laughs) I think that's a really bratty thing to say. And for all that her behavior is bad here, I think Emma is right when she says, you know, living to suit your own feelings all the time is easy and irresponsible. However, the second thing Camille points out is, is everything justified when acting in accordance with ideology? He basically says, oh, so the ends justify the means then. And he's right. You know, professing the right ideas does not justify any and all action. And maybe for Camille, betraying your comrades, betraying your crewmates is itself a bad thing to do, regardless of who your comrades are, regardless of who you're betraying. Doing a betrayal is bad. 
And so he's saying, you know, Emma and Rekua both did a betrayal. And there's an equivalency there. Even if Emma was leaving the Titans and Rekua was leaving Ayug. Now, I think betraying the Titans is not a bad thing, personally. And so, you know, I disagree with Camille here, but I can see how he would reach that conclusion. The thing is, I also... The sense that I get is that he is saying these things to be hurtful to Emma and because he's angry, not because he really (laughs) thinks this way. He's definitely angry. I don't know that he has the emotional wherewithal (laughs) to needle Emma right in her glowing weak spot. Well, he's certainly lashing out. I'll grant you that. And we know he hates the Titans. And so for him to be like, "Eh, betraying the Titans and betraying Aegir are the same, I, I don't quite think he really means it. Though I do think that at that point in the episode, and again, I'll talk about this in a second, he's not so hot on Ayug either. Well, let's be honest, neither are we. (laughs) Yeah. But we're fairly comfortable saying it's better than the Titans. Yeah, but like, when Camille says, is everything justified by ideology, he's kind of needling Ayug here, Mm -hmm. right? Like, is all the killing like justified by Ayug's ideology? Ayug's ideology is superior to that of the Titans, but that doesn't justify any and all actions. For example, last episode, Quattro didn't have to go into the colony, as Fair. you pointed out. Interesting that you point out this contrast between Ayug and the Titans and this criticism of Ayug's behavior because this is happening in an episode in which we are given the starkest example of the Titans' disregard for human life. Absolutely. Willingness to blithely kill whoever. They weren't even trying to hit that colony. They were trying to hit the Argama. Basque doesn't bat an eye. He's like, oh, oh, well, you know, it'll be a good warning to everybody else. Whatever. It's grotesque. It's absolutely horrible. So in the same breath that the show is saying, Ayug's goals may be good, but that doesn't justify anything, Oh, but don't forget, the Titans are the real monsters. Absolutely. And I think this episode as a whole is constructed magnificently. Let me explain that a little bit. So 90% of this episode is this very high energy, kinetic, pushing and pulling, um, melodramatic interpersonal interactions between all of these different characters There's a ton going on emotionally. There's a couple of different interpersonal emotional storylines playing out. It all feels very uh, small. And I don't say that to be diminishing, but a small scale story about individual people, especially the interactions between Camille and Rekoa. And then with two minutes left in the episode, less than that, actually, it's more like a minute and a half. They fire the colony laser, they hit the colony, and it's like all of the I realize now that this idiom I'm about all to use. All of the air very, goes out of the room. Yeah. All of the oxygen gets sucked out of the room. Ooh. But it does. Like the tenor and the tone and the energy just immediately drop completely out of the story. And it's one of the more horrifying sequences that we've had in Zeta. Yeah. It's really awful. Yeah. Truly horrifying. And what it does is it takes all of those very important to the individual people storylines and shrinks them down. And it reminds us of what is really crucially important. 
and reminds the characters of that too. And this is why Camille then says the strength of one person is not enough to stop this. Because this is the moment where he realizes, is reminded, really, no matter how much he hates Ayuk's leadership, its hypocrisy, its problems, only by teaming up, only by working together with Ayug, can they stop the Titans. And in the end, that's what's the most important. It's very cruel, but perhaps also very savvy when Basque makes Rekawa watch the firing of the colony laser. Cruel and savvy is Basque all over. Because for all that she has joined the Titans, she doesn't truly understand yet what that means. And this is a very uh, quick way to show her. This also, more so than if she were just on the ship, makes her complicit. She stood there and she watched and she raised no objection. The blood is on her hands as well. This is something that can never be cleansed. This is something that can never be undone. She's with them and she recognizes this in that scene in the hallway afterwards. She is with them until the end, whatever that should be. We are joined once again by our friend and our voice acting consultant, actor and voice actor Edward Bauer. Thank you for joining us again. Uh, It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me, friends. We had Edward on previously when we were covering First Gundam back in season one to talk about the differences between the Japanese and English dubs and the voice acting in them. So we've brought him back again now to talk about Zeta Gundam. Yeah, I think back when we did First Gundam together, I... um... I might have had slightly hot takes that it wasn't as bad as I had expected. I will continue to grade on a curve, but uh, <laughs> but I will say that, broadly speaking, the TLDR version is Zeta feels worse than First Gundam to me in terms of the English voice acting. All right, let's talk about that. Let's dive <laughs> right into the hottest takes right away. What about it? makes it a weaker (laughs) performance. Well, I want to start by just saying a lot of the performances felt very much to me like they were handed to an actor and the actor stepped into the booth and started reading the scenes and the episode. Uh, And they sound that way very likely because that is exactly what happened. <laughs> I've mentioned this before. I don't personally have any dubbing experience, but but I know people um, very well who do. And that's pretty much the drill. You you get what you're working on that day and you dive right into it. You know, the trick is not sounding like that is what is happening. <laughs> so it's a combination of, you know, those uh, pretty subpar circumstances for any actor to be in with... Um, for whatever reason, uh, I guess the casting just... Well, I can tell you a little bit of the behind the scenes. This was sent to uh, a budget dubbing studio. This was done on the cheap. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, and if you look up the English voice actors, I'll talk about this a little bit more when we get into the individual performances, but most of them don't have a lot of credits in general. Um, and when they do, it tends to all be from this one voice acting studio. 
Yeah, that definitely checks out. Um, I, I won't say who it is yet, but I, I definitely felt like there was pretty much only one actor um, in the English dub who I, eh, maybe one and a half, who I thought <laughs> were pulling their weight. Okay, well, I'm going to be very excited to hear who you think that is when we get to them. So who should we start with? Well, I can definitely, uh, I can throw out the first two notes I took, which were both about uh, Rosami. Go for it. Okay. So I said I'm grading on a curve, and I will I will start my criticism with a gentle one that is really more the translation and the script's fault than anything else. But boy, when Rosami calls Camille bro, it's like the least natural sounding thing I've, <laughs> I've ever heard. Bro does just not mean the same thing as Onichan. It's just it's it's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, the de- the denotation might be that it's the same concept and relationship, but the connotation is completely different. Uh, and so that went over like a lead balloon right off the bat. That whole first scene with the three children, one of whom is Rosami, fighting over Haro, um, is it's not a great place for the dub to start. Everyone in that scene who is pretending to be a child is just not selling it. Yeah, totally, totally agree. Rosami sounds like she's 40, I think. It does not work. <laughs> And it changes so much of the tenor of later scenes. Like, it doesn't make sense for all of them to be so disturbed by her and to think, gosh, this what's going on with this girl if she's not acting like a little child? When the voice work in the English doesn't sell that, it all feels a little off. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's a weird place to start, for sure. <laughs> Especially since it was my first time hearing Razami in English. It was just a real, like double take moment <laughs> especially because that scene in the japanese is very convincing yeah it's very good it's very good there are all of these scenes in this episode where her childishness is less obvious in the text and in the visuals so that the voice actor really has to sell that childishness like when she bursts in on their strategy meeting mm-hmm. and when she sounds like an adult when she sounds like she's 40 she seems much more suspicious that the whole tenor of her character in this episode is different. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Speaking of comparisons just directly between the two versions of the episode in that first scene, um, Rosami, when she's having her uh, her presumably cyber new type moment and reacting very badly to Emma, in the Japanese version, there's an extended pause right at the beginning where you just sort of linger in the blue in the mindscape the American voice actor for Rosami inserts some, like, pained grunts into that moment. Mm. Uh, I say pained in scare quotes because I know this is a family show, but they felt, like, at least adjacent to sexual grunts in a way (laughs) that... I thought so, too. I did not think it sounded like pain. The council is unanimous. (laughs) (laughs) Right. In the Japanese version, she sort of sighs. She almost sounds like she's fainting. A very rough opening scene for a number of ways. We could uh, move on to sort of the next major scene after that and uh, get into Camille, because we have to talk about Camille. Um, (laughs) We absolutely do. While we're lingering on Rosamia, I do want to make a note about the Japanese voice actor. Oh, sure. Um, Of this cast, she's probably the least prolific of the Zeta voice actors that we're going to be talking about today. Um, But she did still have a a quite extensive voice acting resume. She's going to play other roles in Gundam later on. Um, 
But in Zeta, she's actually been doing a bunch of background voices that you may not have noticed that it was the same voice actor. She was Fa's mother. Oh, cool. Uh, she was also a Federation officer who was negotiating with Jamaican in Granada over supplies, who I just learned today has a name, and that name is Maniti Mandina. Hmm. Great. Classic Gundam name. <laughs> now we can move on. All right. So, yeah, Camille, uh, I think his voice actor really starts to uh, show his limits very specifically when we get into the next scene, when they, you know, it's the sort of tactic scene that Rosami will barge into between Bright and Shaquatro and Camille. When Camille says, did they really turn the whole colony into a laser? He doesn't sound horrified. He sounds like, oh, God. I can't believe they turned the colony into a laser cannon. He's very <laughs> one note, and that note is bratty. Yeah, now my party is ruined because they turned the colony into a laser cannon. Uh, I wanted to make a laser. Oh, man. Well, and later on, he sees Rekawa, who he thought was dead, and it's like, oh, I guess you're alive. Very sarcastic. It's really rough. It's, And again, you know, I, I get it. He's a young kid. The text of the script has him all over the place emotionally. It has him constantly, uh, you know, stepping out of line and being disciplined, referring to himself as a spoiled child. So if you're an actor who doesn't get any previous time with the script and uh, and maybe you're just not coming from a background where you do a lot of text analysis, I I get it. I see how you can end up with this read, given the circumstances, but it's just really unpleasant to sit through. <laughs> To be fair, some of the issues were also places where they made changes to the text. In the Japanese, he doesn't describe himself as a as a brat. Or there's this one line when he's arguing with Emma, where in English he says, I'm just a smart-mouthed kid. He doesn't say that in Japanese. In Japanese, in that scene, he's like, I'm just a kid. How am I supposed to understand what's happening or even talk about it? Yeah, I noticed that difference as well. And and yeah, that that is the other aspect here is that the translation for the English dub is just not great either. There's so much working against these actors uh, that, yeah, again, I, I feel bad for them. <laughs> I noticed something comparing the two personas between Camille, Japanese version, Camille, English version. In Japanese, no matter what emotion he's expressing, no matter what he's saying, all of it is... Uh, filtered through this lens of this like endless seething rage. <laughs> Camille is so angry all the time at everybody. And every emotion that he has is tinged with rage. Mm. And there's just none of that in the English performance. Yeah, that's true. It's much more petulant in the English than angry. I totally agree with that. Um, But I think that, and this is, skipping ahead a little, maybe, but I, I think that one of the things that Japanese Camille actually has going for him is that while you understand and feel that anger that's flowing through him, he's not just playing every line as an emotion. Mm -hmm. Again, to jump around, to focus on the, the centerpiece of the episode, which in my mind is clearly the conversation between Reko and, and Camille out in space... Yeah. Absolutely. Even though he's angry, he's not just acting angry the whole time. He moves back and forth between 
confusion and pleading and even hopefulness and then anger in a way that's really <laughs> lovely. Um, I, I would say I think he moves from uh, confused anger to angrily pleading <laughs> to uh, hopeful anger and then to just anger, anger. Hopeful but, anger. That's uh, that's my 2020 slogan. <laughs> but you do touch on something I had a note about, which was just in general, my read on a lot of the performances in the Japanese was that there was more em emotional range, whereas with most of the English performances, it was either emotionless or each character had like one emotion that they do. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. I think one of the reasons for that uh, has to do with basically what, what we try to do as actors, which is not just play an emotion. If you are stuck in the mindset that, okay, my character is angry, you're going to sound one note no matter what you do. I think what works so well in the Japanese version of the Rekawa Camille scene is that he's trying different things with every line. His objectives and his actions that he's taking are very distinct from moment to moment. And that, I mean, that's some, that's craft right there. That's the real acting. Um, and I really appreciated that. I think it, I think it works really well. I don't get the sense that, and again, it comes back to the practical material circumstances under which these English voice actors were working, but I don't get the sense that they had enough information or time to make choices about, okay, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. How do mm -hmm. I want to impact this other character in this line? And how does it differ from the line I just said? And I can almost guarantee that these actors were not doing this full time. This was a side gig for a lot of them. While this is the 40th episode of the show, they have been working on it for a while. They haven't been able to dedicate themselves to understanding these roles in the way that the Japanese actors absolutely did. Yeah, I think that comes through so clearly in the performances. Yeah. This is a really unfair comparison. We're going to keep making it, but it is really unfair because we are talking about a Japanese cast made up of uh, legitimate stars, some who were stars then, some who would become stars later, compared to part-time voice actors doing the English version. Yeah, it turns out acting is a, uh, is a skill that uh, <laughs> deserves to be respected and compensated. Uh, to be... A little fairer, perhaps, to the American voice actors. Shall we talk about the one I thought was pretty all right? Oh, first, one one quick aside. Yeah. Uh, you brought this up with Camille. The one line that made me really upset, <laughs> the one delivery where I was just like, what are you doing? <laughs> was at the very end of the episode, one of the bridge crew is talking about the fact that this colony has just had a massive hole blasted in it. And he sounds so matter of fact yeah. and not upset or horrified at all. Like at least Bright, <laughs> Bright's voice actor tries <laughs> and it's like, those murderers. But the voice actor for Torres is just like, oh yeah, they blew a 200 meter hole in the colony. Do you think it'll collapse? It shouldn't. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not a good look for Torres. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now we can move on to good yeah. stuff. <laughs> Who did you think really sold it? Who knocked it out of the park? Uh, at the top of my curve would be Rekawa. I think she really manages to uh, have more facility and more deftness with, uh, with subtler shades and not just playing one darn note the whole time. Which is why I guess that 
you know, even though English Camille is not so great, I, I still did find myself enjoying and drawn to that that centerpiece conversation between the two of them, even even when I watched it the first time with the English voice acting. Agreed. How did you feel about the Japanese version of that, the Japanese performance by Rekawa? Oh, I thought she was very good. Um, yeah, she she didn't stand out as much to me because the cast is uniformly quite good. Um, but yeah, in Japanese, that scene really works. It's um, it's really wonderful. It's really interesting. It it foregrounds for me, um, you know, and the text does this either way, but it comes through more strongly with stronger actors. Um, it foregrounds for me just how much Zeta is interested in the unknowability of people to each other and frequently to themselves as well. This is something I've been on kind of a, a kick with recently. I've just happened to be watching a lot of shows that that have this layer to them. Uh, I won't talk too much about Legends of the Galactic Heroes because I know you're tired of it. <laughs> uh, but that's definitely a show where this is true, as is Better Call Saul um, for a you know completely different genre, different medium take on some of those themes. Um, yeah, that exploration of what are we to each other? How do we trust each other? And, and how do we know what even we ourselves want is such interesting stuff that, that really needs a delicate hand from an actor. And of the American voice actors, I think Rekawa was the only one who was even remotely up to the task. As long as we're talking about her, I should mention that Rekawa's Japanese voice actor was Katsuki Masako. Besides playing Rekawa, she also was the Japanese voice of uh, Tsunade in Naruto, Sailor Neptune in uh, Sailor Moon, and huh. the uh, character RC in Transformers. Wow. <laughs> nice. I mean, it's a huge long list of roles that she played. I'm just picking out the ones that our English language listeners are most likely to be familiar with. Sure. Yeah, those are some credits. I can. That makes sense. Yeah, speaking of other Japanese voice actors that I really particularly liked, um, I really liked Shiroko. And you know, I, I've seen plenty of Shiroko episodes before, but the contrast between his American performance and his Japanese performance um, made me really appreciate both the casting for that character and the choices the actor was making. You know, I thought he was actually pretty good in the um, in the English dub, but um, because he's only in one scene, he was my like half a good performance since it didn't he didn't have that much to do. I also liked his performance in English uh, quite a bit. He's one of the few who would continue doing voice work after this uh, in a serious kind of way. The English version of Sirocco, who is uh, Jonathan Love, he would play practically every bit part in one of the Dragon Ball dubs. <laughs> uh, and he would nice. go on to be a, a voice director for a later Gundam dub. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to know your stuff to uh, to direct in those kind of situations. So, yeah, I, I thought he was pretty solid. But what I really started to appreciate when I watched it the second time with the Japanese was how they're not just going with sort of a gravelly, um, imposing Shiroko voice. You know, he's he's a very pretty purple haired fellow and it's cast very well in the Japanese, I think. He's, he sounds uh, Bishonen, right? Like, he sounds yeah. like like a charming, handsome guy uh, with a, you know, a slightly higher register voice. Not high, but tenor as opposed to baritone. Um, and that scene where he very creepily 
charm brainwashes Rekua was even stronger for that, I thought. That Japanese voice actor was Shimada Bin, who also enormous list of credits. The one that our listeners would probably be most likely to recognize, he is Broly in DBZ. Wow. <laughs> wow, I would think that Broly would have a much more... Huh, a much different sort of voice. I, I am not a DBZ pro by any uh, by any stretch. <laughs> you know, part of what really makes uh, Soroko's voice and the way it is work so well for the character is the contrast to the other strong, imposing, charismatic Titans leader, Basque, whose voice is the so deep. deepest <laughs> bass uh, you can imagine. God, yeah, Basque is, Basque is wild. And such a contrast to... Uh, one of the biggest disappointments of the English dub, which is, you know, American voice actor Basque, who just sounds like a guy. He just sounds like maybe he's 45. <laughs> he does his, he, he turns out his best evil laugh there at one point. At the very end, he does. Yeah, that, that did sound pretty good, but. It was pretty good for an evil laugh, but then you compare it to the laugh that Japanese Basque does, which doesn't sound like he's doing an evil laugh. It just sounds like an evil person laughing. <laughs> and the difference between those is enormous. Yeah, he sounds like Johnny Cash possessed by a demon. <laughs> That's good. He sounds like Keith David slowly melting or something. It's it's wild. This whole exercise did make me realize, though, how little I tend to think about the voice work. That it's of a quality that I don't really consciously analyze it or think about it. Because as we were watching these episodes, I looked up at Tom and I was like, wow, Basque's voice is really deep. <laughs> like, this had never occurred to me before. Well, there is that distance. Your mind is split between the vocal performance, between the text on the screen. And in the case of you two, in like deep analysis of everything else that's going on, too, um, which is why it's fun, which is why I'm glad we, we do this occasionally and really focus in on the performances, um, because there is so much richness there and, and it is worth like just putting the spotlight on that every once in a while i totally know what you mean though it's so easy to just like take it all for granted mm -hmm. and at least for me a large part of that is because i've watched enough anime to the point that i recognize like common inflections <laughs> and common vocal i don't know vocal tics so I, I do get an emotional sense from how the lines are delivered, but I'm not able to be as critical of maybe a weird stilted line delivery as I am mm -hmm. when I'm watching uh, uh, English, right? Which is one of the many reasons why I, I grade on the curve, even though I'm <laughs> not a fond of, uh, of the English voice acting. I, it has so much working against it. Well, and we have a similar experience to what you're describing even just talking about the text, because we're working from the lines themselves when we can understand them enough to sort of transliterate what's being said in Japanese. Mm -hmm. And then the translation in the subtitles. But I don't know enough Japanese to be able to say, oh, that sounds weird in Japanese too. <laughs> right, totally. Right. And we are talking about a director, head writer who is notorious for using unusual language. I've seen it referred to as Tomino grammar. Do you notice listening to the Japanese, and maybe this is an impossible question to ask you because of what we were just saying, but do you notice listening to the Japanese, does it feel more artificial or more naturalistic than you're accustomed to hearing from anime? Hmm, that 
is very difficult to answer. Um, I'm really not sure. I couldn't say. I, I think there are certain characters, like Basque in particular, uh, who do feel appropriately artificial to the genre. But apart from him, no, I think I would say that for the most part, it, it feels pretty natural when I listen to the Japanese. Yeah, I had a similar experience listening very closely to this episode. When Basque comes on screen and starts talking, I immediately thought, wow, that's a performance. Like in a good way. Yeah. Wow, that's a really good performance. For the most of the rest of it, it does feel more natural. You don't pick up so much on the, the skill and the craft. I will say for the uh, for the Japanese language version, the scene between Reko and Camille on the second watch through, I was very impressed. Yeah, yeah, I think that's totally fair. You know what? I think actually now that I think about it, now that you've both said that, I, I think I want to adjust my assessment there. It's not even that there are some natural and some broader characters like Basque. It's that watching the Japanese, watching this episode, it all just feels theatrical. And by that, I guess I mean it feels heightened, but it's filling the space in exactly the right amount. When you're acting on stage, um, it's it's not the same thing as acting on screen, right? There is a physical material demand that you be heard by the people in the back row. And depending on the size of the theater, maybe that means you're kind of shouting the whole time. But you're fitting in the container of that theater, of that proscenium, and if you're good at it, even though you're being heard in the back, it does still feel appropriate emotionally. And and I think that's how I feel about the Japanese in this case. As long as we're talking about him, I should note Bascom's Japanese voice actor was Gori Daisuke, who, besides playing Bascom, also played Mr. Satan in DBZ, <laughs> Heihachi Mishima in Tekken, E. Honda in Street Fighter. Wow. He was the Japanese voice of Yosemite Sam. What? <laughs> but the one that you should all be familiar with, he was Dozel Zabi in First Gundam. Oh, wow. Sure, that makes sense. He was in that uh, the other episode we discussed together, and yeah, that voice is wild. <laughs> uh, I do want to give a brief sad shout out to the, uh, the English voice actor who plays Basque's like aide-de-camp who's the sort of skinny, widow's peaky guy who looks like he's maybe 45 and sounds like he's maybe 20. Really not a good match between actor and, uh, and oh. image in that case. Oof. Not great. So we've talked about most of the characters. There's one more that I want to talk about in particular, which is Emma. Yeah, I just thought of her too. Yeah. Am I supposed to like Emma? No, right? Not particularly. Many people okay. do. Why? Why? This is <laughs> this is not a great episode for her. Um, she's very strong. Yeah, she has a strong personality. Uh, and to be fair, I I don't I don't judge the worth of a character or a show based on how like much I would like to hang out with them. Uh, <laughs> Emma is certainly interesting, at least. Yeah. What did you two think of her various performances? There was a particular moment in the Japanese performance that I really liked, which is. Right after Camille's reunion with Rekawa and they're back on the Argama, first, she, Emma asks Camille, you saw Rekawa, didn't you? And her tone is more sort of conversational. Like, obviously, she's wound up, but it's more casual. Mm -hmm. After he talks back to her and she slaps him, she immediately puts on commander voice. Mm, yeah. It's much more, 
I'm giving you orders and I am your superior in tone, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was a very cool shift. I found that English just kind of emotionless. Yes, which I think for Emma as a character throughout most of the show, that's a good fit. Emma is very like restrained. She's, for the most part, pretty in control, both of herself and of the situation. There's a lot to like there. I, I like Emma as a character, personally. Um, she slaps Camille a lot. You tend not to like I do like not that. like that about her. <laughs> <laughs> she does bad things. <laughs> but she did choose the right side. Whomst among us has not slapped Camille, though? <laughs> Tom would never. Tom thinks Camille is the best boy. He's so good. <laughs> I did not come on the show to litigate that particular point. <laughs> <laughs> but this is an episode in which Emma has a huge emotional range. She is very sensitive about this betrayal thing going on. She has her new type moment at the beginning where she's experiencing something like dread or horror. She has flashes of anger. There's a lot of Emma motion going on in this episode. Yeah, I quite agree. The last note I took myself was uh, Emma goes nicely unhinged at the end <laughs> of her final scene uh, because she's she's just so exasperated. And you just feel it in her voice the last time she says Camille's name. She sort of barks it at him. Uh, and it's great. You can tell she's just she's just had it with this kid. So now that we've talked about this, there's one more thing about the Dove's history that I can share with you. I didn't want to mention this at the beginning because I didn't want to bias your opinions, but this dub was recorded at a recording studio called Blue Water Studios in Calgary. Blue Water Studios has a reputation for it being a budget studio that produces dubs that are not great. In researching for this piece, I found accusations dating back to around 2003, which is when this dub was being recorded, alleging that the reason Blue Water Studios was established and the reason that dubs were sent there was because its location allowed the recording studio to exploit some loopholes in the way the union contracts for voice actors worked and therefore to be able to pay their voice actors less than the union minimum wage. Whoo boy. (laughs) 2020, angrily hopeful. Hear, hear. Next time on episode 2.42, The Next Tragedy, we cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 41 and Everyone knows there are no bras in space. Pilot doping scandals. Like a dog with two horses. When your bad actions are obviously someone else's fault. Ha ha ha, murder! Quattro drops truth bombs. Well, which is it? Danger or Dangar? You've got to stop me before I kill again. And becoming who they have always been. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. 
Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or continue to flatten the curve while sharing your wrong Gundam opinions by shouting, Ba will never pilot again, out your window at the passersby. We might not hear you, but you'll be helping all of us stay safe. Our wrong Gundam opinion this week comes from Bright Noah, who should know better. The music used in the TNN was Long Road Ahead by Kevin McLeod and Prayers by Admiral Bob. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more information in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Yay. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so yeah, things are getting real. It's getting exciting, I think. Um, there was like an extended sort of period in the middle there. I'm not sure what exactly you would cut, but it did feel like we sort of lost the thread for a little while, and now we're, we're back. We're getting threaded up. When Camille is out, reco-annoitering. How long have you been saving that one? I just thought of it just now. I, I had also considered uh, reconnecting when they, <laughs> when they see each other again. For Osamiya, who is, even in this childish state, even in this childish, even in ish, this childish Speaking of really awful. The weather got nice and now all the motorcycles are out. Stay inside. <laughs> are they just doing laps around the block? I <laughs> uh, just had to unplug it and plug it back in again. What did we all do this morning? You've taken me on a real roller coaster, Tom. <laughs> that was my roller coaster this afternoon. All right, I think there's just that line from the TNN yes. that Tom wanted. Oh, that's right. Let me pull that up. Yep. Sorry to just give you your lines as you're walking into the booth. <laughs> <laughs> I said, the, the trick is to make it seem like that didn't happen. <laughs> no, you can't just celebrate every hour. Ah, church bells go bong. Yay. Woo, we did it! 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Lieutenant Junior Grade Toby. I'm sorry, Toby. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. This is my fault. Rooms at this six-star hotel regularly rent for as much as two suitcases of gold plates per night. Per night. Per night. This is all my fault for saying I'd put your funeral off just because I was afraid of a few mean, feathery giraffes. You don't want to miss your chance to bag a giraffe before they're all gone. I haven't forgotten my oath, I swear. I brought your remains home, didn't I? Here to Space Switzerland, where you were born. Just like I said I would. What's that noise in the background, Lieutenant? I have to live, Toby. I'm sorry. But this way you can live on. Inside of me. What sort of options are there for couples looking to really feel the love?